Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Sam, and you're listening to the 29-Hour Podcast. This week, we talked to our first director on the show, Ethan Hurd. Enjoy! Hi! Where Hello. are you coming from? I'm coming from the Heartbeat Opera office. Amazing. An intense work session with my managing director and co-artistic director. So this segues directly into one of my questions for you, which is about founding your own like artistic company and how you came to the decision to do that and what the various pros and cons are. Great. Um, <laughs> you know, I was one of those kids, those cliche theater kids who had a basement theater. When I was 10, my parents, for my birthday, gave me wrapped in a little, you know, 12 by 12 piece of paper, um, a gel frame <gasps> because they had bought like one theater par, you know, can light to put in our basement <laughs> on one of those like suspension shower curtain rods, <gasps> you know, between the floor and the ceiling. And they had also installed one track of light <laughs> like lighting, with like a fader <laughs> and, um, and a curtain. They put up a curtain. So for the next, you know, several years, I was just obsessed with staging my sisters my little sisters in various tableau i wouldn't say they were (laughs) shows (laughs) they were short tableau vivant that's Um, interesting so does that mean that like one of your first interests was about like shape and picture and image absolutely i mean looking back i'm like oh my gosh i was such a director from the beginning um at the time, I, I really considered myself a performer and a singer. I, I came, I thought I came to theater through singing because I was a pretty good boy soprano. And, um, but anyway, you know, I got to college. I directed my first college show sophomore year. I did the Pirates of Penzance, which is a show that I had been in three times mm. as a young person. So I felt like I can, I can give a try you know, directing this. And it went really well. And I got hooked on that. And, um, you know, at Yale, we we had this opportunity to apply for money and then make things happen. There was so much money at Yale. It was so nice. I know. <laughs> but there was also, like, nice, discrete chunks. Mm. So the Sudler Fund, when I was there, yeah. you could apply and get up to $1,200 to do a show, which kind of kept things relatively under control (laughs) you know um there's only so much ikea furniture you can buy (laughs) for twelve hundred dollars so many urban outfitters outfits you can get and leave the tags on exactly um so i you know i had a taste of like self-producing in college then i moved to new york and sang for julia at Mm -hmm. nyu um and um founded a company so i with a call with a high school friend we decided we would raise money. We would put together a little five-person equity company, take them to New Mexico, to mm. Santa Fe, where we saw an opportunity to like found a theater company, a summer theater company, that would be kind of in conversation with the opera there and all the, the art. And How did you pick that location? She, My friend had roots there and had family homes there so mom dad and grandma had a had homes that we could populate um inhabit it's so so interesting when you hear these things i was just at the 
the writer's retreat space at writer at yeah, Rider yeah. farm and telling about their origin story about how it was a woman who this farm was had been in her family forever. Emily, yeah. Emily, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was like, well, we have this beautiful piece of property. Why don't I use this to like create this amazing artist space? And like this sort of like entrepreneurial spirit of like, eh, these are my givens. Like I can do something with it. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. You know, we had a little commune there. We cooked for each other and did two shows. So that all happened. Then I went to grad school. Was one of those, by the <laughs> way, proof? Yes. Oh, which I wrote music for remotely. Yes. Didn't you write for both of the shows, Iphigenia? Did I? And other daughters. Didn't you do some choral? Oh, you're right. Yes, I did. Yes. Because I was going to say the proof I see because it, it comes in my shuffle sometimes because it was pre-recorded. But yeah. Oh yes, you did both. Oh, I love for Umbrella that. Hat. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago. True. Um. But anyway, then, you know, then in grad school, um, I got to run the cabaret, the Yale Cabaret. And so that whet my appetite for sort of more artistic directing and um, got back to New York. And, you know, was assisting and looking for freelance work and teaching and had a dinner with my good friend Louisa and we dreamt up Heartbeat. So, you know, it was going to be. We started small. We were like, we're just going to raise a little bit of money to do a little two-week workshop and just do set up 50 folding chairs in a rehearsal studio. And there was a really great outpouring of sort of grassroots support for that. And then we did our first fall benefit, which was a drag show um, around Halloween, which has become a wonderful tradition. And we're doing our fifth one this uh, October. So, yeah, I mean, Heartbeat has really been a wild ride and, and very organic and um it just has its own kind of momentum and magnetism like there really are a lot of people who want to be a part of it both artistically you know as audience as supporters and i feel like we were you know the baby group the baby company and now we're this like voracious hungry adolescent company that is having growth spurts and growing pains and kind of navigating that four to five to six year area um which theater managers had told me about in <laughs> grad school uh, was going to be challenging but um, be challenging in what way well for instance today we were talking about w2s and 1099s mm. and all that infrastructure of like how do we you know pay for the accountant we, we installed internet today we had been you know borrowing free mm -hmm. internet which was unreliable. So, you know, now we're grown-ups <laughs> in, in a lot more ways. We went to the Opera Philadelphia uh, Festival this weekend and just got to cross paths with really um, amazing artists and administrators. And we really are starting to connect with um, larger companies who want to partner with us and, you know, are curious about our work. So it's an exciting time. I mean, so this is my first time meeting you. So I, I don't know a whole lot about opera. But so I guess I'm curious, like, for you, it, like, is, 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 are you more excited about opera than theater? Or is it, like, an um, even balance for you? I don't, because I just don't know. <laughs> it's an ever-flowing, ever-evolving, uh -huh. you know, constellation of relationships. I, I love musical theater. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that was my first love. 
I still gravitate toward those albums in uh-huh. a way. Um, opera came a little bit later, although I, I did sing in opera as a, as a kid. Uh-huh. So I was backstage seeing that whole world. Um, opera for me as a director gives me a lot of opportunity and freedom to imagine, to author, to produce. Um, for instance, I love Sondheim, but so far I haven't produced a Sondheim show, partially because I think it's harder to produce a Sondheim show in New York than it is to produce an opera, believe it or not, because opera is often in the public domain. So, th- so the, mm-hmm. the operas we've done are in the public domain, which p- mean that I can reinterpret them really right. boldly. And uh, that's what really Heartbeat's Calling Card has become, is we reorchestrate the shows, we cut them, splice them, set them in unexpected places, you know, and um, it's really an invigorating process for me. Um, I also think opera is just this meeting place that's coming together of every art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and musical theater is that in a way too, but um, in a way musical theater's um, techniques and kind of strictures can be more binding. I mean, I think musical theater is evolving in really exciting ways too, but um, that's s- interesting because when I think of opera, <laughs> especially like older opera, yeah. I think of it being very um, binding. That's <laughs> true. That's but, true. But when you, when you say your mission for your company is to like reimagine these works, like I, that makes sense. I guess I'm curious, like, um, <laughs> I don't know. We talk a lot about new work on this podcast, and like, I guess I'm curious, like, what is the what is the benefit of um, of taking an older work and like reimagining? Like, what is the what is the positive there? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. in s- instead of just like a new work with the new thing you want to be exploring, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and I think heartbeat will evolve into producing new work as Uh well i think (laughs) (laughs) um we're debuting a new song by royce vavrick and dan schlossberg in our drag show which is like dipping our toe in that um you know i think there's something about a masterpiece about a canonical text score that people have experienced before or some people have experienced before possibly many times you know, it lives in our culture. It lives in our memories. Um, and it's very rich. It's very fertile ground to uh, explore, to sort of have a conversation with past productions, um, with other interpretations of that story in culture. Um, so, you know, I am all for debuting a new work and and being the kind of midwife for that process as a director but i will say part of the thing that louisa and i have really been trying to do is is um foreground the director Mm. as as the lead artist so we really pride ourselves on that and i think american (laughs) theater culture often is a Playwrights Horizons theater culture that says, 
the writer is the most important artist sure. and everyone else is going to support this new play or this new musical. And I like doing that too. But I think um, what Heartbeat has given us is the chance to like do our dream projects. So, so we, cool. you know, and I've, I've gotten to actually to exercise my writing muscles. So I write the script for the drag show. I, I wrote the English dialogue. I co-wrote the English dialogue for Fidelio. Um, so it's, you know, it's the sandbox that we get to set the parameters for. Which it is does fun. make sense in a way, like with a brand new work, so much of it, I feel like what a director has to do is just sort of keeping things on the rails for clear storytelling, which is not really all of what directing is. I mean, and God bless them. I have so many friends who are in the new play industry and, and, mm -hmm. and they are doing the readings, they're doing the workshops and they get into the rehearsal room and they are the, the writers. I mean, this is no judgment <laughs> of writers, totally, totally. but they are the writer's therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, they are there to show the writer what they are creating. And hopefully they get to, like, put their mark on it, their spin on it, make a big contribution to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think I think Louisa and I have been really consciously trying to make our way yeah. and sort of... Um, put our artistic uh, mark out there. Nice. Yeah. I'm curious, you said like, this is a thing you think is a very American thing. <laughs> and so I'm curious, like, I just because I don't know a whole lot about theater in other countries, like, yeah. do you do you find that in other... Yes. I mean, yeah. I don't, I'm not an expert, but think of Ivo Van Hova. Uh-huh. You know you're seeing an Ivo show, yeah. right? <laughs> um or really the Russian theater, you know, they're just reinterpreting Chekhov. Like, that's what you do if mm -hmm. you're a young director. You do a new Chekhov, and you're mashing it up, and you're pulling it apart and exploding it. Um, but they actually train more directors than they do writers. Like, there are a lot of mm. schools in Russia that barely have playwriting departments, um, just because they're like a director-actor-driven culture. So that was in grad school when I sort of started to learn that. I was like, oh, interesting. Like the American sort of Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams thing is just one way of ma orienting a theater mm -hmm. culture and yeah. making making work. That's interesting. Since you mentioned Fidelia, I want to pimp you into talking about it a little bit. And also my follow-up question is sort of about audience and who you think the audience can and could be mm. for opera yeah well i love talking about fidelia so <laughs> this was the show we did in may with heartbeat um and for those of you listening who don't know beethoven's fidelio um it is about a woman leonora in the original uh version but leah in our updated American version, um, who disguises herself as a prison guard and infiltrates the facility where she believes her husband has been wrongfully incarcerated. So when I was choosing an opera to direct last year, 
I really wanted to respond to our moment. I wanted to respond to Trump directly. And um, this story just really grabbed me. It was a story I had come across in grad school and uh, was just sort of shocked returning to the libretto. I was just like, oh my God, this is so the right thing to work on. Um, But basically we did a version, a 90 minute version where we set it in an American prison today with a primarily black cast. So Floristan became Stan, uh, a Black Lives Matter activist who in the prologue we see is imprisoned basically at a protest. He's uh, handcuffed. And um, we hear his wife speaking to a lawyer, a pro bono lawyer, trying to figure out how to find him and free him because he's basically been, Stan has basically been disappeared. Um, And then the Beethoven opera is actually a dream that she has. And we kind of go into this fantasy of her um, becoming a prison guard, finding Stan, eventually rescuing him. Um, But what was, we, you know, there's this very iconic moment in the Beethoven opera where the prisoners are let out into the courtyard for a breath of fresh air and they sing a glorious transcendent hymn really to about freedom and about incarceration. And in the past, Heartbeat had never really done a show that was more than six, seven performers. And we kind of wondered, okay, how are we going to tackle this iconic chorus? And I sort of threw out there this crazy idea, you know, what if we collaborated with prison choirs and actual incarcerated people? So Dan, my music director, sure enough, knew a prison choir conductor in Minnesota who went to Yale and um, I FaceTimed with her and she has an amazing TED talk about her experience. Um, and she said she was interested and she thinks she thought her singers would be interested and she connected with us with other prison choir conductors in the Midwest. And miraculously over six months, Dan made a new arrangement for men and women these six choirs learned the German chorus. We split it up into sections. Dan and I visited four of the choir rehearsals in Ohio, Kansas, and Iowa. Am I saying the right states? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it was just totally life-changing personally and also a really, really powerful collaboration. And uh, more than 100 incarcerated singers were involved more than 70 volunteer outside singers who come into the prisons on a weekly basis to rehearse. Um, and yeah, we're just super excited about it and, and it's going to have more life. We're going to remount it in November in New York on the Upper West Side, November 28th and 29th. And uh, we're in talks to take it elsewhere. So exciting. And am I remembering right that your experience with these prison populations was that they were pretty easily like into it and connecting with the material? Oh, I mean, that was one of the best parts about it, too, is we started a, a pen pal, you know, a letter exchange. And the letters that we received from the incarcerated people were so moving. I mean, basically saying the German at first was really hard, but now I really am into German. You know, we heard stories from the conductors that 
some guys in Ohio had like adopted the German lyrics as like code. So they like greet each other in the hallways with it. Um, And also in a deep way, they, I think just connected with the story and felt really proud that they were a part of like a national collaboration that was getting media attention and was, was saying, you know, just to, just illuminating the humanity of these people. And in the, in the production, we heard their voices at first, but then we also saw their faces in projection. So we, times kind of stood still and the New York audience got to be with, you know, incarcerated people um, of all shapes, sizes, colors, and... Um, Everyone said that was their, you know, that was the moment of the production that that sticks with them. And we were able to post those letters in the lobby, um, you know, saying, someone saying, I've been in prison 23 years, and in a way, this is the moment I felt the most free um, in that whole time. So, I mean, it's very, it was very, as I said, life-changing to kind of think about how art can make that kind of impact. Um, so we sh- we're striving to, <laughs> to you know, uh, rise to the occasion again. Because, yeah, there is something, like, when I think about opera, I think about, you know, like, who the audience is. And, like, I think it's interesting with, like, opera that's happening now that is really trying to reach a broader audience and, like, making opera cool is like way (laughs) too reductive but like i don't know i just think it's it's interesting to see where that yeah i mean opera is so laden with cliche and and stereotype and kind of assumptions about oh it's it's in the med or it's in these big houses that are impenetrable to younger less affluent people less educated people you know you need to understand the foreign language you need to have read about it you need it's going to reference things you don't understand. Yeah, yeah. It's like far away and over-decorated. And, and I think what we want to get back to is that opera is great singing and great acting and great storytelling. And the the music should plug into and does plug into the deepest, richest human emotions. And, um, and we, you know, what if you experience it up close in a more intimate venue I like um, everything in small intimate venues <laughs> yeah like what if what if the dialogue is in English you know what if it's 90 minutes instead of three hours um can I ask you the question that has been whose answer has been eluding me for years and years I don't know if there is any satisfactory answer but do you have a dividing line or a definition for yourself about the difference between opera and musical theater hmm Well, I think it's a scale. I think it's like a, or a spectrum or a a kind of universe. Um, So I think (laughs) when I was talking to a friend, a trans friend about um, gender identity, you know, they were trying to, you know, educate me and say, people use the word spectrum and this linear idea of like Marilyn Monroe on one side and John Wayne on the other. Mm -hmm. But what if 
it's a universe? What if it's three dimensional mm -hmm. and there are planets in it with gravitational mm -hmm. forces, but you can be anywhere in that three dimensional space. And I think musical theater and opera could be like that too, mm -hmm. you know, cause it's boring for me to think of it as like, okay, guys and dolls is here. Les Mis is here and Hamilton's over there. I mean, <laughs> and then Puccini's there and Monteverdi's there. Like I think every artist, every team of artists is making its own piece and it's in conversation with traditions and other, you know, cultures. But I think especially in this 21st century of global, <laughs> you know, exchange, like we can incorporate so many vocabulary into a piece of art. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's certainly a kind of singing that that we associate with these various genres. Um, there's a kind of acting, there's a kind of band, orchestra. Um, but I, d I do think Heartbeat is very open to, and I'm very open to questioning what those things mean and being a little irreverent with it. You know, just, we think Carmen can have a saxophone in it. <laughs> and, you know, we think, um, lip syncing can be operatic, you know, and, and can actually expose what's the most brilliant thing about opera, you know? Um, I actually have a question about that because the one thing I, I had heard about you before I met you today <coughs> is that I was up in the Berkshires about oh a month yeah? ago and I heard about the production you directed of Little Shop of Horrors. Um, one of my castmates was like going on and on about how amazing it was. Um, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically the plant was played on stage by a man in drag, lip syncing to a woman off stage. Yes. So can you can you like tell me about that? Because that <laughs> sounds incredible to me. Well, we're bringing it back from the drag show. This uh, nice. that's so awesome. Um, yeah, it really worked. Uh -huh. It really worked. And Torian, who who played, who did the lip syncing. Uh, he and Brianna, who did the singing, became a kind of mind meld. Uh -huh. You know, they could like, she was off stage left and she could see him. He couldn't see her, but mm. she could respond. They could kind of have a conversation live. Uh -huh. They knew they had things planned, you know, that they were going to do consistently. But um, it was so thrilling to to experience because... Basically, she can be a superhuman voice where she can put all of her energy and focus into her sound. And then he can put all his focus into uh, physicality. And yeah. he can exaggerate what she's doing vocally. Um, so, and then and I think in so that show. for like a, a superhuman extraterrestrial plant. <laughs> which also I think got at something queer yeah. in the writing. Uh -huh. Because mm -hmm. I think... Howard Ashman may have thought he was writing for a black base. <laughs> <laughs> um, but once you put a queen into that role, uh -huh. it unlocked all this other kind of humor and sexuality because I think Seymour actually is really attracted to the plant. Like there's actually this kind mm. of sexuality to it, mm. um, you know, and this devil thing and, uh, I would love to bring that back actually. I mean I it's I think it um 
it has more life in it so yeah it sounds i i from my friend's description of it i wish i could have seen it because it sounds incredible there is a youtube i just discovered um which is mostly showing off brianna's vocals because i think it's audio with photos but um there's a bootleg okay (laughs) we'll go hunting um i'm curious about i mean like do you do you are you interested in like exploring like older pieces through like a queer lens definitely yeah Yeah. um definitely i mean fidelio we incorporated a kind of queerness in it because initially you know the original story is that leonora um dresses as a man to become prison guard but in 2018 we thought well she can be a female prison guard but that means she has to pretend to be gay to seduce the prison guard's daughter Mm. so that relationship became gay which was really cool um and and yeah you know i'm just like not into gender binary stuff i'm not into um a heteronormative kind of ongoing (laughs) (laughs) patriarchal (laughs) thing so i'm just interested in finding times to finding opportunities to play with that and and let people be all kinds of fabulous sexualities. It's so interesting to me because when I think of like old school opera, I think of like extremely patriarchal, <laughs> extremely right. like normative. So right. is part of is part of your like re-exploration like sort of like radically like attacking that patriarchy? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay, I mean cool. I mean the, the opera we're doing this spring is kind of a quintessential Baroque patriarchal Bible story. It's La Susanna. So it's about Susanna and the elders, which now is like chillingly relevant because it's two judges who try to take advantage of a woman while she's bathing. When she rejects them, they exploit their power to destroy her. But luckily, a young whistleblower, um, and in our production that will be portrayed by a woman who I think is going to be a little bit genderqueer, um, who calls out the truth and exposes the truth. But also this that was written for a male narrator originally, and we're going to do it with a, a female narrator. Um, I'm so late to this party, but I was only, like, last night I was at my writer's group, and people were talking about the queer reading of Othello. And I hadn't even really known that there are sort of, like, maybe like canonical queer readings of like all these different classics. Oh yeah. So I learned that, or at least someone was saying that the queer reading of Othello is that Iago is gay. Yeah. Which like, that's such an interesting field to me. Like this idea, cause then, you know, people were saying like, you know, if Iago is gay, then you sort of have to take it like, Oh, then Shakespeare is a little bit homophobic. And so then people were going back and forth saying, well, like, but do we really think that Shakespeare thought that? Or is that just the queer interpretation for the sake of exercise? Mm. Well, I mean, I think qu- Shakespeare was so darn queer that <laughs> it's everywhere. You know, I th- and I think he was so brilliant that, and sort of in his flow, that I think he let it crop up in all kinds of characters. You know, I think girl you know boys wearing dresses wearing pants mm-hmm. you know being attracted to all kinds of things like <laughs> i'm mentoring a an, a very queer production of as you like it at yale right now where arden is being designed as a kind of 
queer utopia that's sort of an immersive club with a with a band and live you know and a sort of drag hymen host mc character and dancing and uh instead of duke senior in the forest it's dyke senior who's a (laughs) uh queer theorist and so it's very much on my mind actually the shakespeare queer question um yeah since you mentioned mentoring a show that was another thing i wanted to talk about was like you do teach a fair amount and like mentor younger kids like what's our future look like are the kids good oh my gosh i mean so i've been on last year i was on the campus of yale princeton and the new school and the young folks oh my god i realized i was like twice as old as some of them um, <laughs> the young folks are so woke so curious and tenacious and and I mean, I think angry about um, stodgy old traditions, you know, and... Yeah, it's interesting. When I think back to, like, my (laughs) college experience and, like, the theater that we did in undergrad, like, I actually don't feel like that was characterized Mm. by anger and Mm. rebellion and, like... It's a different moment. It is. Yeah. For sure. I, I think the Black Lives Matter movement, I think the Me Too movement you know, I, it makes it different. Yeah. I, th- I think this, this decade has been really brutal. <laughs> brutal. Yeah. I mean, and Trump and, um, I think people are responding to that. Um, yeah. I wonder how that, if that's, it's, it's, I feel like there's a clear line for how that would affect kids studying theater now. I wonder if there is like the trickle down of like what it's like to be a biology student right now or like what it's (laughs) like to be history. I guess there's another sort of like clear line. But I wonder if I don't hang out with the (laughs) the (laughs) biologists as much. (laughs) We should have asked Brandon Michael Laden. But you feel like there's like a hunger in them. I'm assuming you're teaching directing students. Yeah. Well, I I have directing grad students. Um, I've also been teaching undergrads. but. Uh huh. And, but you feel like there's a hunger in them to like explore this sort of like um, activism in their creative artistic work. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I think um, there's this sort of why here, why now mm-hmm. question that people yeah. are really grappling with actively. That's actually, I was, <laughs> when I was just up in the Berkshires, I was um, one of the, the assistant director on the project I was working on was a current, or a recent college grad. And he was saying, like, I was asking him about his story and, like, how he, like, ended up at the place where we both were at. And he was like, yeah, and, you know, I've been, like, bouncing around, but, like, I'm really starting to wonder, like, if this is really what I should be doing right now. And I was, like, uh, directing, and he was like, uh, you know, theater, because, you know, like, I want to be like more like I want to make I want to like do something important and like make a difference like maybe like go work on a political campaign and I was like oh wow okay yeah so yeah I guess I guess the two things we always do on our podcast is we talk about vocabulary and we talk about if we should all quit the business yeah yeah yeah, that's true (laughs) I never talk about quitting the business that's true I Um, will say that I think I believe more than ever that cultural change can happen through the arts and I think representation is so important I think storytelling 
you know, you can make a show, you can write a book, you can paint a painting that people will carry with them for the rest of their lives or for a portion of their lives and they will derive inspiration and energy out of it and they will share it with their friends and make community out of it and that's just so important and I think as a fundraiser too I'm constantly having to articulate that and convince people that making opera and sharing it with relatively small numbers of people compared to Netflix, you know, mm-hmm. um, matters. Mm-hmm. And that that, alive, that live event matters and that expression of beauty and, and artistic kind of collaboration. You know, I just think it is the time of TV, you could argue. You know, I, I read this Sam Mendes profile in The New Yorker where he was telling his Oxford students that $9 billion, something like that, will be spent on Netflix, new content, you know, next year or whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> and the major Hollywood studios are only spending $2 billion on <laughs> content. So it's really TV. Wow, yeah. Um, or this new idea of TV that, yeah. that is our main mode of storytelling. Um, but <laughs> TV... I would argue is can be so isolating. Yeah. I mean, yes, we, we share the stories. We talk about them a little bit, but you know, we're not even watching them at the same time anymore. Um, we're just watching them on our own devices. And mm-hmm. it's funny with that. I just think about watching TV in a group or by yourself. This is a total tangent, but I feel like I used to watch TV with people more. And I think that now that I, do watch at least half of what I watch probably alone. I feel like my tolerance for like other people's reactions when I do watch with other people has gotten lower. Like I'm super sensitive to like, oh, are they like silently being skeptical of this? Or like, are they paying enough attention? Right. (laughs) I have these sort of like theaterish standards. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think like in this like quote unquote golden age of TV, like the quality of the content has gotten so much more well it's like the kind of thing where you have to pay attention a little bit more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know i don't don't know if that's part of it but yeah i always like the kind of stuff i can't do that like half watching thing yeah i feel like i've only ever watched the things that you have to pay attention Mm -hmm. to my husband has a whole category of tvs there's tv that he watches and tv that he half watches and he's like always actively seeking out things to be in that second category oh i don't like interacting with things in that sort of like half doing it way yeah there's just something so important about being in rooms together. Yeah. And I think, you know, no question, theater is my church, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And I think our generation, I would argue, is less religious or less. Oh, that's interesting. Is that true? Oof, I don't know what generation we've <laughs> been talking about, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, less committed to organized religion, huh. perhaps. Um and but i do think religion has played a really vital part in society and and an important part in terms of community building and in terms of um yeah just relationships (laughs) interpersonal relationships and taking care of each other and um i worry i do worry about people losing that yeah that skill that um that energy and and source of 
humanity in their lives. I mean, yeah. Do Tell you me what you guys... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, will you remember your question? <laughs> yeah. Tell me what you guys think about this. I was just talking about a friend who is proposing as a definition or a, a definition of community or a necessary element of community that part of it is that you sacrifice something for the group. Now trying to decide if I believe that that's true. I think I think participating in a group does necessitate sacrifice and compromise, for sure. Because like you don't get to do exactly what you want when you want mm-hmm. and how you want. You you release into a group's kind of agreements about this is how we're going to coexist. Um, and then there is something about the psychology of now that I've sacrificed something, <laughs> I value this thing more. Mm. At least I think. Maybe. Huh. I've literally never thought about this like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. What were you going to ask? Oh, I was going to ask, like, do you see with your company, with the Heartbeat Opera Company, do you see the benefits of that community? Like, can you, like, oh can you, like, gosh. witness that? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, we have beloved collaborators who have built this company with us, who are devoted, who we have built trust with, we have built a web, you know, a network of of support and favors and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think just the trust is so key. I'm so, I'm so grateful that I can uh, that my craft has grown with people that we have reference points that we share um, yeah. yeah does that extend into the audience like because you were talking about the experience of like watching the thing mm. together yes yes, you yes. Know? thank you for asking that yeah I feel like with the cabaret I think at Yale I, I witnessed this community of audience that returns week after week year after year and i think i crave that kind of community building too that it's not you know a freelance director goes out of town directs a show and leaves after opening night Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they don't even see how the community receives the show typically Maybe yeah, you can convince the theater to give you a another night of housing later in the run, mm. but you're probably paying your own way back, you know, to see it again. And um, with Heartbeat, part of the joy is the building of the audience mm-hmm. and the. I mean, it is a donor database, but it's that that it's a database of people who care, who believe in the work, who are your yeah your friends and your your community so how much um, do you feel like this is another thing i think about i went to this opera comp the opera america conference in june and i feel like a lot oh, of i things, wish i could have gone it would be really cool <laughs> but i feel like a lot of the things i'm thinking about opera lately are from that conference yes but the idea of i might have even talked about this on the podcast already but sort of with your audience how much is your job to sort of like serve your audience and give them what they're asking you for versus to like educate or lead your audience where you think we should all go which i think is you know double <laughs> complex when it's like a donor base too 
we don't we don't to be honest at this point in our development we don't give a lot of thought <laughs> to what our audience wants i mean we want them to have a a good experience with us <laughs> um so we you know we think about <laughs> their comfort to some level mm-hmm. um but um i think we think about what we want to say to the world as you know as artists um i mean we yeah does that answer your question i mean i think yeah. i think we think about how to cultivate the audience of our dreams so like how do we get high schoolers in um i actually i do certainly keep in my mind when i'm directing or conceiving a production like the high schooler who's never seen an opera who doesn't speak any foreign languages with the aficionado who has seen 15, you know, Labo M's um, and is going to have a very highly sophisticated take on the ideas in the production and the talent in the production. So I I try to... I like the idea that those two people can enjoy the same thing. Yes, yes. Do you think that that's true of all productions? Yes. Well, we hope. I mean, (laughs) we try. (laughs) We try. Um, Yeah. You know, in the drag show, I think we challenge, I think I'm consciously pushing people because I know that. Okay, so tell us what the drag <laughs> show is. Dragus Maximus, <laughs> a homosexual opera odyssey, October 26th and 27th at Roulette in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, it's a 70 minute show featuring four singers, drag queen, drag king, dancer, actor, Six instrumentalists, nice. four costume designers. Um, <laughs> it's going to be spectacular. Basically, Homer is in Hades, being tended to by Cerberus, sexy Cerberus. And um, Aphrodite calls down to him and commissions him to write a new epic love poem for 2018 because the world is so broken and in need of love. And uh, Homer sets out with Hermes's shoes to find inspiration for his poem. And he visits Medusa, Polyphemus, Nero, um, Cyclops, or I said Polyphemus, um, and eventually lands on the island of Lesbos and meets Sappho <laughs> and her muse. Um, so it's cheeky, it's uh, filled with virtuosic singing and these kind of queer takes on um, iconic opera scenes. Um, we're doing some lip syncing. This uh, is another tangent, <laughs> literally off the word virtuosic, but I'm realizing that's another thing that I maybe associate more with the in the opera side of the universe and the mu- than the musical <laughs> theater planet. Julia, this idea <laughs> of like prizing that, like something being difficult and rare. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, of course, but, you know, like the elf of a belt, everyone recognizes that that's difficult and rare, and that's part of why it's impressive. But does that does that bring with you at all, Sam, this idea that, like, there's something about the virtuosity of, like, it's good that it's hard? Or did I just make that, that up right that now? There's something about that that doesn't ring true in musical theater? or That feels more true. In opera? In opera, yeah. <laughs> you put me on the spot here. Um, you can decline the answer. I mean, I, I don't know. I think um, fr- from where I'm sitting, the th- and 
clearly I don't have as much of a depth of understanding of opera, but from where I'm sitting, like the things that are, that, that I, that I, that it seems to me are prized in an opera performance are very different from the things that are prized in a musical theater Mm -hmm. performance. And, um, from where I'm sitting, neither of them is more difficult than the other. Yeah, I guess not that I'm saying, I guess the other thing I like sort of associate is these sort of like extremes. Like, I feel like you hear higher high notes and lower low notes Mm, maybe in opera. I would Mm. would agree. I think, you know, so I was just in Philadelphia this weekend and I was watching this Lucia um, by Donizetti. I was in the fourth row and that coloratura soprano stuff is so crazy hard and this amazing soprano is paid to do it like five or six times, you know, separated by days off. And thousands of people are there. There's a huge orchestra, a huge cast of, you know, chorus. Everyone looking at her. She's on the ground, covered in blood, lying down, singing these pianissimo, beautifully <laughs> sculpted notes. And I did just have this out-of-body experience where I was like, wow, like part of the thrill of this is the given circumstances of it only happens six times. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a miracle that she's this healthy and pulling this off. It's a miracle that no one's coughing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, you know, and I was thinking, I was comparing it to Bette Midler in my mind (laughs) of like, going to see Bette Midler and Hello Dolly is so thrilling and um, a special thing too, but she does do it for a year, you know, and she can kind of do it when she's a little under the weather and she can, you know, she can forge through. It's a different kind of virtuosity. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, the stamina. I mean, it's the stamina, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, for me, for my money, Bette Midler and Hello Dolly, like her virtuosity was like in her like, like larger than life charisma. Yeah. You know, that was that was the thing that like other people can't do. Yeah. You know, and so I I just think there's you know, there are different different types of things that are that are difficult in different places. Agree. Completely agree. Yeah. I never saw Bette Midler in that production. Um, She was very good. (laughs) She had she filled that theater. It was also it became it was it sounds similar to what you're describing with this. um um Lucia. Lucia. Um where it's just like the energy in the theater was so insane because everyone was just so excited to be there to witness right. whatever she was gonna do. Yeah. It it almost didn't matter what she actually did because she had somehow created that energy before it even began. Well, and, not and just her. That's a that's a huge sure, team sure. and machine of people creating yeah. that. Definitely. Yeah. But which then, I which I'm fascinated then, by. Yeah. You know, because Beyonce has that, like, you know, that is show business yeah. is like the whole hype right too it's interesting i'm thinking this is a veering off topic a little bit but this is making me think about accessibility and on one hand you know we're saying being there it only happens six times you have to be there in person in a way the smaller the space the smaller the experience the better (sighs) and how you reconcile that with like i want everyone to be able to have this kind of experience yeah i know that's the hamilton problem right Mm. Wait, what's the Hamilton problem? I guess that, but... Well, it's populist, yeah. and, like, they decided to give away tickets to high schoolers. Yeah. But they're making $3 million a week because <laughs> tickets are however much they are. You know, and yeah. I 
And I think it's really cool that it's a blockbuster. And I think it's really, really good, great artistic work, you know, that deserves to be highly valued by society. Um, But it's tricky. I mean, theater is fundamentally, and Broadway in particular, tricky in that way in that there are limited number of seats and a limited number of performances and I mean I kind of love that I think I think that's a thing to be celebrated too that on the one hand theater cannot be cheap I mean if it's if it's cheap it's taking advantage of people huh that's a bold opinion I feel oh my god I mean if it if the tickets are cheap then the government needs to be paying for it do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. then then very wealthy people organizations governments need to be subsidizing it because you know we don't pay our artists well enough we have all of these brilliant people including myself <laughs> including you two living in the city you know living anywhere trying to make art that's important and society especially American culture is not supporting it so it's a problem. Are other countries better at that? Well, I mean, I think you see, you know these productions come from France. They come to BAM. Mm-hmm. They're four hours long, and they just reek of hmm. government support. Reek in, in a in bad way or reek in a good way? Both. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so it's so foreign to me that I'm kind of like, what? Like, you can get away with that sequence taking yeah. ten minutes. Yeah. And oh, how many people are in this cast? Yeah. yeah. And like, how expensive is that costume? Yeah. And it's thrilling because I just imagine what I mean. Evo embodies that too. Like yeah. the when he brings his productions over, they they just couldn't have been created in New York. Yeah. Um. Like when I think of New York, I'm like, and I, I'm pretty familiar with the ecosystem here. It's like, okay, you're renting a studio space in New Forty Two, or you're like in some nonprofit theater. You know. No one is rehearsing for more than four weeks. Mm-hmm. But everyone in Europe rehearses more than four weeks. Like, okay. you know, in Romania, it's like, there's no opening night until you decide it's ready. Huh. It's not even on the calendar. Wow. You know, like, I think, right, we have such a cl- small idea of, like, it's four weeks, there's previews, the New, York, the New York Times comes. You know, it's, like, actually very narrow idea. That scramble of, like, getting it together with not enough time and not enough money is so much part of what my idea of what theater is i know <laughs> well i hear about my friend you know my friend from romania who's like there's no equity you know so the day the week the month is so different and the director will storm off mm-hmm. have a cigarette cancel the rest of rehearsal <laughs> this is just a different relationship to resources and time and space huh. you know whereas like here i'm constantly thinking on about the clock and about the equity break and about yeah um I, mean, I noticed that too, that like in the times when I've worked with directors who are brilliant, but if they aren't also separately, like even if you have a stage manager, if you're working with a director who isn't actually a genius at time management, I feel like that's <laughs> like problematic. Yeah, yeah. Even though it should be, it that shouldn't have to be like part of the skill set <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm excited about, this is what Heartbeat also is trying to tackle to some extent is, you know, the big opera houses will pay for star singers to come in from out of town and the show's been designed a year in advance. Sometimes it's been teched 
the lighting has been teched on the set before rehearsal started. Hmm. So, you know, the Met had a tech rehearsal in the summer and they had light walkers and they teched it. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, it's just a crazy system. And then these international folks come together, have a quick rehearsal process, or, you know, if they're doing a remount, there's an assistant resident director who just puts it back together. And I think, you know, Heartbeat is like, what if we can be nimbler and more agile and we can get these young people together and make that more utopian, like, not utopian, but (laughs) but closer to an ideal collaborative process where it's not as segmented and hierarchical and sort of separate. Because I think that can be the downfall of opera in that it's so expensive and there's so many moving parts that each department is kind of siloed and, um, you know, the orchestra doesn't even care what's going on on stage. Like they're clocking in and clocking out. But like, what if the instrumentalists and in heartbeat productions, the instrumentalists are on stage. Like mm-hmm. what if they're in costume? What if they care about the storytelling <laughs> and they care about the production? Yeah. You know, they're not just playing the same old score. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of possibility when that is possible. And that actually is a musical theater, like a contemporary musical theater idea, you know, of, of really including, yeah, breaking down those barriers. That's all, Rob. 